You're listening to the Chancellor Pink Podcast on Chancellor Pink Radio. I wanted to do a little sports podcast on the Pittsburgh Panthers college basketball team because I have always been a gigantic college basketball fan. Uh, When my family moved back from Milwaukee area, Wisconsin, in 1979, I, as a 13-year-old boy, really moved into a hotbed of winning. Now, I had already been a big Steelers fan up in Wisconsin because they had won, they actually won a, a Super Bowl before we moved, won their first Super Bowl before we moved away, and then they had won two more while I was up there. So I did, even though we were not in Pittsburgh, so I was not around to see their game every game every Sunday, I followed them as a boy from afar, and they certainly did well. I also kept an eye on the Pirates from afar and was interested in them. My dad made sure I did that, but that was it. Uh, uh, Some pit football, too. I I remember my dad pushing uh, the the Pitt Panthers. They won their national championship when I was up in Wisconsin. And Tony Dorsett, not Dorsett, (laughs) Tony Dorsett and and, uh, Matt Cavanaugh and that team, and I remember – being uh, into that and, and watching some national games that were on TV with my dad up in Wisconsin when I was a 10 or so. But when I moved back to Pittsburgh, boy, did I come home into excitement, right? Because uh, I, we moved back in August of 79 and that year, so that's the football season just starting up right in the late uh, part of the baseball season. So I started listening to games every night on the radio. The Pirates, you know, they're in first place. They're fighting for the division. And, of course, they go on to win the World Series. I went with my family to a World Series game at Three Rivers Stadium, sitting up in the outfield, saw, unfortunately, a loss. I think the final score was 9-6, to six, uh, a loss to the Orioles, or it was 6-3. to three. I forget exactly. But, hey, they go on and win that World Series with Pops. Willie Stargell was a great, exciting thing for a young boy to – or teenage boy. Uh, and then, of course, the Steelers season starts out, and I get to watch every game, and they go on and win their fourth Super Bowl. So I am, you know, in heaven. I come home to my hometown that I missed, that I grew up in until I was nine, moved away from for four years. I come back to it, and my sports teams win championships. So what I did is I, I converted over, uh, I remember in 1980, um, I don't believe I was into it in 79, 80, but 80, 81, I got into pit hoops. They had Clyde Vaughn. I believe they were still in the Atlantic 10, Roy Chipman. But Clyde Vaughn was a fantastic player. And, I mean, he hit every shot and did everything he could want. I think he ended up averaging 21 points a game for pit. I think he... Still up there as one of their leading scorers. Maybe he might still be their leading scorer of all time. Um, but it was so fun. Now, they didn't have the three-point shot then, but he would take the shot, deep shots, and hit them a lot. If they had the three-pointers back then, just imagine what uh, Clyde Vaughn's scoring, you know, his points and his leadership at all time at Pitt would be if if they had had the three-pointers his, his, his career. Um but it was exciting watching them. They, they weren't that good. They moved to the Big East, though. 
And then the 80s and the Big East with Pitt was fantastic. So, you know, sure, the Steelers had a rough time in the 80s, that's for sure. And they didn't come around until they got Cower in 92. Uh, and the Buccos struggled in the 80s. But I'll tell you, in the late 80s, when they started to get good fighting with the Mets, that was exciting. And then, of course, the 90s, 90, 91, 92, with Bonds, Bonilla, and Van Slyke, and Dre Beck, and Smiley, and, I mean, it was exciting. So I had a lot, and, and of course, they sucked for 20 years, the Pirates, but I had a lot of energy. Pitt, uh, you know, got got was really solid in the Big East. Then they had some lean years in the 90s, and then, of course, uh, Ben Howland came in and made them relevant again, and he stepped out and Jamie Dixon took over and just ran with that baton. And I saw a AP poll uh, voting on the best teams for the years 2000 through 2009, so of that decade. And Pitt, by AP voters, was voted the fifth best team of that decade. So a lot of people currently... Uh, like to shit all over Pitt and act like they're not relevant and haven't been ever. And uh, little do they know, they were absolutely in blue blood territory for an entire decade of the 2000s. And and if you were a longstanding Pitt Hoops fan and had experienced their years with uh, Charles Smith and Jerome Lane, Demetrius Gore and Curtis Aiken back in the 80s, uh, I think Aiken was a holdover from Roy Chipman's years into Paul Evans. Um, but if you had been through that, and especially when they got then the, the freshman of uh, Sean Miller, that final year when they were a two seed and lost to Vanderbilt, sadly, <laughs> in the second round of the NCAA tournament on that Gary Goheem three-pointer taking it to overtime, tying it up. Uh, what a horrible nightmare that was. But, you know, we lost, and we lost it in overtime. But that team... You know, with with Smith, Lane, and Gore, and then you brought in Sean Miller and Jason Matthews, such a sniper, and uh, Terrell Porter and Bobby Martin. I mean, that that team was stacked. That team probably, yeah, that's the best pit team ever, in my opinion, uh, at least in my lifetime. That's the, best pit, that's the best pit basketball team of all time. Second to the Dwan Blair, Sam Young, LeVance Fields team from 2009, it would definitely be. That that pick group uh, in whatever year that was eighty something something I don't I don't know off the top of my head when Smith Gorlane and the freshman you know including Miller and Matthews when that was but anyway my point is when Pitt was so good in the two thousands elite good blue blood good voted fifth best team of that decade by the AP constantly battling for the championship in the Big East, in the Big East tournament. No, they never did much. They never did much in the uh, in the actual NCAA tourneys, ending in 2009 when they did get to the Elite Eight, but that heartbreaking loss to, to uh, Villanova with Scotty Reynolds driving down the lane there. Uh, nobody really defending him because they were afraid to foul. Uh they didn't really cap it off with great success when it mattered. But that period of time, in in perspective, when you viewed it in perspective along with the 80s and the Big East years, made Pitt, uh, for, for anyone who was paying attention, 
anyone older, anyone older who's been around, excuse me, made Pitt a very good basketball program because you had the 80s and you had a drop-off in the 90s, but then you had greatness in the 2000s, and that's enough for me. You know, you've got two-thirds of the last 30 years. They're pretty damn relevant program, doing pretty damn good stuff, turning out NBA players, you know, in Smith Lane, Blair, and Young. I mean, a true NBA talent there. Um, so when they go bad, which they really went mediocre under Jamie in the – they did get a number one seed in 2011, but we all know that was not a very good team. In fact – Getting to the point of this podcast, I want to say, in my opinion, that 2011 team with with uh, uh, Gary McGee and Brad Wanamaker and Ashton Gibbs and those guys, they were 15-3 and three in the Big East, and they were a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. But they lost in the Big East tournament to the ninth seed, Connecticut. It was 9-9 nine and nine in the Big East that year, who became a ninth seed in the NCAA tournament. And then in the second round of the NCAAs, that number one seed Pitt team lost to Butler in a terrible, heartbreaking loss. What a what a nightmare. The foul at the free throw line, giving them shots, and we didn't make both shots. Brown missed the second free throw, and then Nazir Robinson fouls the guy and gives them the win at the line. And oh, it was just a horrifying loss to Butler. But I will note, Butler, who, who was obviously an eight seed playing us as the one, <clears throat> they did go on to the championship game in Connecticut, the ninth seed, who beat us uh, in the uh, in the in the uh, Big East tournament, uh, went on to win the national championship. Remember that was a very ugly, unpleasant championship game to watch. I think the score was in the fifties or something. But Connecticut beat Butler, so you could say that Pitt's last two losses that year in twenty eleven. To Connecticut and the Butler were to the two, the, two, the last two losses were to the two teams that made it uh, to the NCAA championship game. But that aside, that team in 2011, I'm sorry, they weren't very good. I know they were 15 and three. I think they ended up with six losses. Uh, but I think this team's better. This current Pitt team. Um, is a better team than that team, in my opinion. And I'm more excited to watch this team. You know why? Uh, I don't think that team had NBA talent. I mean, Gary McGee might have played a little bit in the NBA. Ashton, Ashton gives him, I think Wanamaker came in for a cup of coffee. Um, well, most of those guys played overseas. And uh, there was just not really a star talent. Ashton Gibbs was supposed to be, but then he went on to have a really bad, disappointing senior year for Pitt. Um, and although this current Pitt team may not have any NBA talent either, I think, you know, Jamarius Burton has a shot. I think uh, Blake Hinton would have to do a lot of work on his dribble and drive game. But he's a hell of a rebounder and a, and a pretty solid shooter. I don't know. They probably don't have any NBA talent either on this team, really, per se. Federico is a wild card guy that, you know, because of his height and some and his blocking ability, maybe he could see some NBA action. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I probably they'll end up with no NBA players of any significance from this team. Probably, 
uh, any any of the players that are actually contributing to this team. If the Twins put on weight, the Diaz Graham Twins from Spain or from are they from Spain, Helsinki or wherever they're. No, no, that's right. It's Federico's from Helsinki. If those uh, if those guys can put on some weight, uh, they could do some NBA damage because they have moves and they can shoot. They have they have blocking ability. They have some game. They're just a, they're just on the floor too much. They go to the floor a lot because when they they get banged down inside, they fall. But they also fall a lot on their own because they do the shots. They drive in and they let, do layups and they fall to the ground, which is all the rage in today's hoops. It's all about falling to the ground, just like in Major League Baseball when you're diving in the outfield. Sure, you could catch the ball at your knees, but what's the fun in that? Time to dive and fall and tumble and get all the grass all over you and make the highlight reels, right? That's what they're doing nowadays. <laughs> they're not fooling us. Come on. We know that they are intentionally flopping and falling and all because it looks better. It looks better. But anyway, the Twins do a little bit of that too. But they're on the ground too much. They get stronger. They get beefed up. They could be NBA talent. They really could be. They're freshmen, and I think they're actually going to stay for a while. I think they're going to stay and develop under Cable for a while here. I don't think they're going to be rushing off and trying their game in the NBAs anytime soon, uh, especially not uh, before hitting that weight room and the dinner table a little bit. But so maybe this pit team doesn't have the NBA caliber talent, just like that 2011 team did. But one thing they have that that team did not is the degree of shooters and scorers. You know, that they have. I mean, the fact that they've got uh, Greg Elliott, who to me at 40, over 42% from the three point line, he reminds me tremendously of, uh, of Matthews from the pit teams of the 80s. Uh, I just think Jason Matthews was uh, a sniper and he was a great free throw shooter. And that's how I view Greg Elliott. And frankly, Elliott's a little bit better than Matthews in the sense that. He can he can get some rebounds too, and he can get some steals. He's a fighter, and he's a he's a he's a great energy guy. He's a lot of fun to watch, and he's my favorite player. And I think he gets underrated. And I think uh, I know some people think uh, Nelly Cummings is underrated, but I, I mean he gets his respect that he deserves for his assists and for his shooting, which is pretty solid. He is uh, a better three point shooter, for example, than. Burton or Sabandi, both of whom uh, shoot around 32% from the three-point line. Nelly does about 35. Um, and we got Henson at 38 and and Greg Elliott at, at um, 42. So Cummings is a pretty good shooter, and he can certainly drive the lane and do layups, and he's leading the team in assists. So he's a good player. But if you look at his assists, if you look at his numbers his this year, his final year, his senior year, Nellie Cummings, they're almost identical to the numbers that LeVance Fields put up during his senior year during that 2009 season. They are. The only way they differ significantly is Fields was only about a, a 72% free throw shooter, and uh, Nellie Cummings is a lot better than that. He's in the high 80s, topping off at 90 but that's not that significant because he doesn't get to the line like Fields did because he doesn't drive as much as Fields did. So really, even though he's a better free throw shooter than Fields, that's really not that significant of a, a difference because he's just not that that same degree of toughness that Fields was. But in all other ways in terms of how he moves and distributes his scoring, they're, they're equal. But then, then, then there's the assists. 
Fields had like seven and a half assists his senior year. Now he's at like four and a half. So not quite as good. But part of that is because we got Burton dishing it off at about four and a half assists per game too. So they both they both are like they both feed the team pretty much equally. Burton and Cummings, where Fields was the man. He was the floor general. So it's hard it's hard to hold that against Cummings, but put it this way, I don't think Cummings is as good as Fields. I think he's a really good, solid point guard. Uh, I think he does a lot for this team. I think if you had to pick an X factor, if you're going to use that term, that I know Chris Peak from PantherLair.com has labeled Blake Henson the X factor. He has called him now. He's changed it to the wild card slash X factor. And I want to take strong exception with that. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. But um, the X factor on this team, if you want to pick someone, it would be to me Nellie Cummings because Nellie Cummings is not the leading scorer. Nellie Cummings is a good scorer, but when he's hitting his threes, I get excited. When Nellie Cummings is, is, is going up and they're coming down, I'm excited. When he's driving the lane and when he's on, I'm excited because Nellie Cummings is not always on. He's a solid, good player, but when he's really coming through for the team, it's exciting and it's a huge boost to the team. So to me, you want to talk about an X factor, you have to start with the notion that they're not always on or they're not on more than they're off. You know, you have to you have to start with a guy who's, you know, does a sort of a, a nice little thing in the background all the time and then every once in a while they can explode and make a huge difference. That's why I say Nellie Cummings because he does his thing and he's solid and he's there. And he, but every once in a while he can come to life and make a huge difference in a game as he did in the game at North Carolina. And I believe he's the reason we won that game in North Carolina, which even though North Carolina has gone off a cliff since then, certainly felt at the time and still to me feels like the most significant one of the year for Pitt. Because even though we beat Virginia at home, it just was earlier in the season. We didn't know how good Virginia really was. It was a tough fought kind of low scoring game. So it was a North Carolina game, but, it was at home. It was at Pitt. So beating North Carolina in their home court when they still were thought to be NCAA caliber, and I still think they are, and they might get in. But I think we put the, the, the stake in their heart. They've really been bad ever since then. I think getting swept by us and losing that game was really hard on them and their mojo and their psyche. And I think Nellie Cummings was primarily responsible for that. He went on that 10-point burst, two three-pointers, uh, a two-pointer, and I think he had two fouls. Or no, it was two three-pointers and two two-pointers, yeah. Uh, all in a, like a, a minute-and-a-half range or something. It was amazing. And it was a real key to that win, in my opinion. People like to give all the credit to Jamarius Burton in that game, and sure, he nailed it down in the end. But uh, to me, it was Cummings and that burst there that really gave a shot in the arm to Pitt and uh, helped them, uh, help them win that game, and it was the, it was the key factor, the X factor, to them winning that game. And I, so I think Nelly Cummings and or Sabandi, Nike Sabandi, if you want to talk about someone who's an X factor, he's. But say they've already given him the label of the sixth man off the bench, et cetera. So how can he be the X factor of the wild card when he's the guy that comes in off the bench? He's the sixth man. But to me, that's he's not always good off the bench. Sometimes he has off games, like last game at Virginia Tech. Uh, like lately, frankly, he hasn't had a lot of great games lately. But when he is on, when he's on, 
And when he's hitting his threes, you know, he only shoots 32%. He's thrown up 95 of them, by the way. That's really too many. When you do the minutes, Burton's thrown up 50 three-point attempts, okay? When you do the minutes per attempt, his 95 attempts for Sabandi, that's a lot, uh, given the, his minutes. And, uh, and he's only hitting 32% of them. So he's, he's okay. He can take them. But when he makes them, let's put it that way, when Nike Sabandi is hitting his threes, that's an X factor. When Nike Sabandi is stealing balls, when he's driving the lane and hitting layups, when he's shaking and baking and making a good jump shot, that's an X factor. So I would say Cummings and Sabandi are the X factors on this team uh, in terms of they can really give us a shot in the arm. But here's the thing that, that bothers me about Chris Peak and Panther Lair and his insistence, because he's being very stubborn about it, as he is about all things. Chris Peak is one of those guys I enjoy listening to him. Uh, I think he's very insightful. He does great coverage of Pitt, both uh, basketball and football. Mainly football, though. He's been a, he's been a big football guy. Uh, even when Pitt was good in hoops, he was a little lackluster on the basketball coverage. Uh, but he's really picked it up here. I, to his credit, he likes this team, see? And it shows. And he's, he's made several podcasts uh, enjoying the team, praising the team. And he likes them. So he's, he's actually done his morning pit podcast that he does uh, a lot on the, on the hoops program right now. Rightfully so. Because they're having such a good year. Um, and he's doing a nice job of it. But one thing about Chris Peak is he needs to be the smartest guy in the room. It's really important to him to come up with something, a thought that no one else has. And to be right. And even when it seems off and not quite there, he'll hammer it home. He'll hammer it home. And he wants to win and be right a lot. And it can get irritating. It can get irritating because I'm just looking for coverage of a team and I like good talk. And if he wants to have an off-the-wall theory, that's cool. But I wish he'd be a little bit more humble about it and present it as such and then let it go. Come up with an idea, put it out there, float it out there, move on. But he's very OCD and he repeats himself a lot. He comes back to things and he hammers them home, hammers them home, hammers them home. And he's doing that with his Blake Henson X-Factor uh, wild card thing. Now, first it was always X-Factor. And I finally just, and, and guys were responding to him like, um, he's pretty much their best player. So, yeah, I don't know what, about an X-Factor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was feeling the same way. Like, oh, well, he's their leading scorer because before the Virginia Tech game, Saturday, he, he, he was their leading scorer over Burton. But then after that game, Burton now retook the lead. It's, it's, it's about 15 and a half points each. I mean, it's, it's a toss-up, okay? And more on that in a minute. But for some reason, Chris Peak decided at some point this season that Jamarius Burton was the best player on pit. He was the best player. He's the star. And so did the networks, because every time they show Pitt, it's like they show Jamarius Burton warming up, and Jamarius Burton, Jamarius Burton. And I'm like, hmm, he had a big game against North Carolina. He had a big game, but I mean, he's an important player. But, boy, are they watching this team? Because this is a whole team effort. And, in fact, when Blake Kinson was interviewed on 93.7 The Fan not too long ago, he was specifically asked a question by one of the producers who is that guy on the team that you want to get the ball to for that last second shot in a game with a game on the line? Which Who is the player, would you say, is the guy that gets that shot, gets that ball then? Well, Chris Peak at that time was saying, oh, it's Burton. Burton's the guy. And, and you listen to the radio and you hear 
Curtis Aiken has really likes Burton, and he's calling him Big Shot Burton. He created that name for him, and Billy Ogrove's running with it. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they were viewing him as the guy, too, obviously. But Hinson's answer to that question on the radio was, you know, the answer is exactly the opposite of what you're thinking. That's what he said. And then he went on to say, we don't have one guy. It could be anyone in a given game who's on or who has the shot or the look that we're looking for in a given situation. And if you've actually watched this team this year, that's exactly right. And to imply otherwise, it's like you're not watching the team. So to say Burton's their best player, you're not watching the team. All you got to do is go look at the stats. This is another thing I did the other day. I took every single stat, you know, scoring, field goal percentage, free throw percentage, three-pointers, three-point attempts, three-point three percentage, uh, assists, blocks, rebounds. And I scored, I took the five key guys on the team. I didn't put Sabandi in it because he wouldn't have come up in a, in a running anyway. And I didn't put uh, Federico, so I'm sorry. I take, I take him out too. I took the four keyest, the biggest guys on this team. Beyond Federico, I don't want to diminish him, by the way. He's developing. He's very important. But I, I looked at uh, Nellie Cummings, Greg Elliott, Blake Henson, and Jamarius Burton. And I looked at all those stats. And I scored it. You get a one if you're number one in it. Uh, two if you're two, three if you're three, four if you're four. Fourth out of those four guys and all those stats. And obviously, the leader at the end has the fewest points. Now, I don't have the stats in front of me anymore, but I remember them in terms of the winner. And the winner will surprise you. Second place, I'll, no, I'll do it this way. Last place, fourth place was Cummings. Third place and second place, well, third place was Blake Henson. Second place was Jamarius Burton. And the leader for being number one in the most categories was Greg Elliott. And what I loved about that result is it proved that we are a team. We are definitely a team. And all the players matter. And all of them are important to winning. And no one player is a star on this team. But it also showed there's a reason Greg Elliott's my favorite player. It's not just because of his attitude, and it's not just because he's a three-point shooter. I think he gets underrated by his overall game. And by that, I mean his rebounding is, is, is important. His steals, his assists that he, that he gives, he can dish it off. And as he's shown in recent games, including in the first half of the Virginia Tech game before he had a sit for nine minutes or, or, or actually maybe 11 minutes. I think he only played nine minutes because of fouls. He can drive the lane and make shots too. He just doesn't do it on this team because we set him up for threes because he's so damn good. So he pretty much just haunts the three-point line until he gets a dish and, and makes the shot. But his overall game is solid. No, he can't drive the lane the way Nellie Cummings and especially Jamarius Burton can. No, that's Jamarius Burton's specialty, and he's great at it. He's the best at it on the team, and it really isn't close, except I think 
I think Cummings is pretty damn good at it too. And I think Sabandi's pretty good at it. No, Elliot would come in fourth on that in that area. But he can do it. And Elliot can work a shot and he can make his shot. And frankly, I don't think he takes enough shots. I think he, he you know, Hinson doesn't pass up shots. He, he's the leading three-point shooter on the team. Uh, he, he'll take his shots and, you know, and, and he makes 38% of them. It's not like, well, he's really hard. He's just clanking them up. No, he's, he's a 38% three-point shooter. So you go ahead, Henson. You keep taking those shots. I know people like Chris Peak like to bring you down for some reason and act like you're ah, cringy and scary and you're throwing up shots and everybody's going, what's he doing out there? But when you shoot 38% from three, I don't feel that way about you. How could I? When you're the leading scorer on the team, I don't feel that way about you. How could I? But I think Greg Elliott should take more shots. I think he is better uh, than the team is allowing him to be. But that's fine. I'm not going to ask him to step it up. I don't like ball hogs. And frankly, my only gripe, my biggest gripe against Jamarius Burton, uh, well, first of all, he's, he's the leader on the team in turnovers. But secondly, he just holds the ball too long sometimes. He dribbles and dribbles and dribbles and then drives and forces shots. And nobody wanted to say that about the Virginia Tech game. Because he got his 12 points or whatever it was, you know, and 16 shots, would he make seven of them or something like that? So, okay, he was all right. But all, all that Chris Peake could say was he seemed he had to work a little bit harder for his game. But he sticks with Burton. You know what you're going to get out of Burton. He gives you the same thing every game. You know what you're going to get. You know, and he's his best player. But the reality is, no, you you get the same thing out of Henson. Let's look at the stats. But first, all the by the way, Burton, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get because sometimes he ball hogs and he forces things, okay? Sometimes he dribbles too much, doesn't pass it enough, and he turns it over, okay? And sometimes he forces shots sometimes that he shouldn't. So that's part of it too. Uh, and when he doesn't do that, he's a great player. But he's not always a great player, see? That's why he's not far and away the team's leading scorer or the team's leading assist man. If he was really playing at the top of his game all the time and was an NBA talent, he would be leading this team in scoring and it wouldn't be close with Henson and he would be leading in assists, not second to Nellie Cummings. But anyway, here's the bottom line on, on Blake Henson. Uh, Chris Peak went through the games and he decided to draw the line at 16 points. And he said, you've had a really good game if you've scored 16 points or more. So, okay, I'll accept that. I mean, it's a very arbitrary and vague number. And frankly, if you dropped it to 15, Henson would be even better. But whatever, look, I'll go with the 16. And he went and he called, and this is in support of his argument that Henson's the X factor, the wild card, rather than, let's say, the team's best player. <laughs> uh, he said, you know, when, when there are 15 times Henson scored 16 or more points in the Pitt team is 13 and two when he does that. Uh, then, then there are 12 times he didn't do, he didn't score at least 16 points, and they are six and six. So from that, he deduces when he's on, as if, as if that's like something, it's like a 50 50 faucet. When Henson's on, they do really good. When Henson's off, they struggle. So you got to cross your fingers. Oh, please be on, Henson, please. And then he said at the same time, Jamarius Burton, you, you know what you're going to get from him. 
he's on and he's on. Well, guess what? Guess what? I went back. I did the same calculations on Jamarius Burton. How many times do you think Jamarius Burton has scored 16 or more points? The answer, 12. 12. There are two games he didn't play, by the way. Henson's played all the games. Two games Burton did not play. But 12 times he scored uh, 16 or more. 13 he hasn't. Okay? For Henson, 15 times he scored 16 or more. 12 he hasn't. Hmm. Now, from that, those numbers, would you say flip a coin, a wild card, is he going to be on or off? Would you say that applies more to Burton or to Henson? It's a trick question because the answer is does apply to either of them. If you score 16 or more points in 12 of your team's 27 games or in 15 of your team's 27 games, Guess what you are? Not a wild card. Not an X factor. You're a good player. You're one of the best players. That's what you are. So, <laughs> now here's the difference in the numbers, though. Now, this is interesting. And, and Chris Peake didn't do this because he was just trying to make his point. He wasn't actually trying to find an answer and actually study the numbers and get to whatever the point would be. No, he was just trying to win the argument, you know. X factor is Henson. I'm done. But when Burton scores 16 or more, Pitt is eight and four. When he doesn't, they're nine and four. So does that mean that Burton is just being Burton, but Henson's a wild card? No, it means they're both being them. And 15 times Henson scores 16 or more, 12 times Burton does, 12 times Burton doesn't do it, 13 times. I'm sorry, 12 times Henson doesn't score 16 or more? 13 times Burton doesn't? No, they're both the same. They're both the same almost in terms of when they're on or when they're off if you're drawing the line at 16 points. But here's the difference. Burton doesn't matter as much to the team as Henson does. When Burton scores less than 16, they have the same record. They're 9-4. and four. When he scores more, they're 8-4. and four. So he doesn't matter as much. Now... Whether or not scoring 16 is a big deal to your team doesn't make you a wild card or an X factor because what a wild card means is you're variable and you're uncertain and whether or not you're going to produce is unknown. And the X factor is like it's a toss-up. And he's the key, but he's also it's unknown. Here's, here's the way you should spin it. If you want to talk about X factors, like I said, I would go with – Nellie Cummings or Sabandi as the X factor. But if you want to talk about Henson and X factors, I would spin it this way. The X factor is when Henson is off or not scoring at least 16 points a game. When Henson is off, the team struggles and they're six and six. So I wouldn't say Henson's the X factor because he's their best player. He's not... He's, he's, he's equal to the best player on the team. He's similar to Burton. They're the best players. And he's on more than he's off. He scored 16 points. If you're going to say on is 16, he's been on 15 times and he's been off 12 times. Burton's been on 12 times and off 13 times. Okay. Does that make them a flip the coin X factor? No, that makes them good players. 
So he's on more than not. He's off. He's a good player. But the X factor is if he's not on, Pitt struggles. It's hard. So that, that doesn't make Hanson the X factor. You get the distinction. And this is important. You actually have to think through the process. Calling a player an X factor is an insult to the player. Calling Blake Hinson a wild card X factor diminishes the consistency he's shown this year to be the team's leading scorer, for crying out loud. He has more than any player on this team, and it's not even close. Burton's three behind, but there's no one else close to those two guys. He has scored the most more than any other player on the team. That's not an X factor. That's the best player. Calling him an X factor implies that it's a toss-up and you never know when it's going to happen. He might be on, he might be off. That's just a lie. The guy shoots 38% from three. That's not sometimes on. That's a good percentage. He's been our leading scorer, or at least scored 16 or more, rather, 15 times. That's most on the team. That's not an X factor. That's called best player. The, the X factor is when he's off. The, the, the question is if he's off. The thing that happens rarely or less frequently but is important to the team is when he's not on. That's the X factor. If Hinson is off, that can be the X factor for this team. He's not an X factor. He's not a wild card because he's on more than he's off. Luckily, he's our best player. But unfortunately, for the team, and this isn't Hinson's fault, by the way, calling him an X factor wild card is putting all the blame on him. Keeping it on him like, oh, he had an off game. You know, you never know with Henson. Oh, it's hit or miss. That's bullshit. That's utter bullshit, and it's very insulting to Henson. The point is not that. The point is this. If Henson's off, we, we need Henson. He's the most important player on the team. He's the key to the team's success. That's the way you word it. Not a wild card, not an X factor. He's the key. He's the most important player. He's the MVP on this team. He's the MVP, not the wild card, not the X Factor, because when he doesn't score 16 or more, we struggle. Pitt struggles. They're 6-6 six and six in the games. Burton's not the MVP. Burton is not the most important player to this team. Burton's not the most valuable player to this team. You know why? The two games he didn't play, we won. And when he scores less than 16 points, we're 9-4. and four. When Burton doesn't come through and score at least 16 points, we're, we win more than we lose by five games. In fact, when he does come through, we do less good. We're only eight and four when he does come through. So he's not, whether or not Burton is scoring for you is not the key. It's not the key. But you can't turn around and say, well, Hinson doesn't do it. You know, it's if he's on, he's off, it's a wild card. No, because... And you can't turn around and say, well, Burton, he's always there. Always. No, it's the same numbers. It's the same numbers. Burton is on 12 times. He's off, if you, if you go by that, 13 times. Hinton is on 15 times. He's off 12 times. They're the same. You can't tell me Burton's on more than Hinson. Hinton's, Hinton's up and down. Burton's solid. They're the same. You drew the line, Chris Peak. You, not me. You drew the line at 16 points. You chose 16 points. At 16 points, the stats are the same. In fact, Henson's more consistent than Burton. You want to talk about he's doing his thing, he's consistent, you're going to get what you're going to get. He's more consistent. He's 16 or more 15 times. Your boy's only 12 times. He doesn't do that 12 times. Your boy doesn't do it 13 times. 
look, I don't want to take down Burton. I like him a lot. I think he's a very good player. I think he's it's a virtual tie between him and Henson in terms of the best players, the most important players on this team. But what you did, Chris Peak, by your numbers is prove not that Henson's a wild card or an X factor. You proved that he's the MVP. You proved that Blake Henson is the most important and most valuable player to this team. Because when he's having one of his more times than not good scoring games, they win. And when he's struggling, it's a struggle for the team. We need him. We need him. And this is a 19-8 and eight team, okay? So it's not an X factor on a 19-8 and eight team. He's the best player and a key, the most important player, and the most valuable player on this 19-8 and eight team. And when he's on, we win. And when he's off, we struggle because he's the most important part of our team. That's the answer. That's the correct answer. That's what the numbers show when you look at Burton. If you just assume that Burton's always on and we win when he's on or, or whatever, he's always there. It's all, no, he isn't always there. He's just as variable as Henson. The only thing you find when you dig into the numbers is it doesn't matter as much to the team when he's off or on. You know, it doesn't really matter to the team. So that doesn't denigrate Henson to say, boy, when he's off, it really matters to the team. That, to me, that raises up his, his significance. That raises up his value. That's why he's MVP, most valuable player. To me, when the numbers show you that you struggle if he's not scoring, then you want him on that court. You don't want him sitting out with fouls. You don't want him fouling out. And by the way, when he's not hitting, you don't want him to stop shooting because you need him to score. You want him to keep at it, and hopefully he gets it back. And guess who else does that? NBA talents, the biggest stars on the NBA teams. They always shoot and shoot and shoot. James can be down. like could be having an awful night, 7 of 20. Is he going to stop shooting? 6 of 20. No. With the game on the line, he's still going to throw it up. Why? Because he's still a talent. They're still the best player, the most valuable player. And if they hit that big shot, they're going to win the game. And they can do it. They can turn it around in the course of a game because they're the most important player and they're good. So they can have a, be having a down night and turn it around. And the, that's another thing, by the way, Chris Peak. When you imply that Henson is off when he's off, go back and look at those numbers. You drew the line at 16. There weren't many games when he just sucked. You can't be leading the team in scoring or second by point two to Burton now after Saturday's game by sucking a lot of times, Okay. The, again, the, the, the idea that when he's off, oh, you mean when he scores 15 instead of 16 on the line you drew? Or when he scored 10 or 12? Come on. Come on. Come on, dude. Let's look at the big picture here. He's a leading scorer. He's up there with Burton, and he's on more than he's off. Burton is the one who's actually on less than he's off if you're drawing the line at 16. 12 and 13, right? We went over the numbers, right? So <laughs> the guy is odd more than he's off. And, when he's, and it's not a toss-up. He's the best player. And the reason he's the most important player is when he's off, it really hurts the team when we struggle. We're 6-6. Six and six. If he's not scoring at least 16, we're 6-6. Six and six. So that's not a wild card. That's not an X factor. That's the most valuable player. That's the most important player. And if you want to talk about what you could sort of denigrate as a wild card, as an X factor, as a negative, you know, negative spin on it, it would be... When he doesn't score, that's the wild card. If he doesn't score, we struggle. It's important. So that's that could be your X factor. Him not scoring is the X factor. But luckily for Pitt, that doesn't happen very often. And I would add this. 
luckily for Pitt, even when their best player, most valuable player, is off or isn't scoring at least 16 points, they're still 6-6. Six and six. They're still 500. So even when their best player isn't scoring to the level where he most often does, they can win the game. It's a 50-50 proposition. They can still win the game. So thank f- that, that, that says a lot about the team nature of this, the, the, the team nature of this team, the group nature, the, the way they rely on each other, the way they perform together. And, um, and again, I think it's a disservice to the quality of Henson's game and how the importance that he's been to this team to refer to him as some sort of X factor or, or uh, wild card. And I think if you really understood how important he's been to this team, you'd stop doing it. But you don't and you won't. And to you, it's, it's Barton, Barton, Barton. And even when the numbers don't bear that out, even when you break down the numbers and it shows Elliott actually leading as the most impo- best player in all the categories, even when you break down the numbers and it shows Burton and Hinson a virtual tie all the time, and, and even when you break down the numbers and it shows Hinson's scoring is a key to Pip being great, and that shows he's the most valuable player. You decide that Henson's hot and cold. Henson's off and on. Henson's a wild card. Henson's an X factor. I don't know why. Maybe you don't like his hair. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's the pudge around his middle. I love all that stuff. I think it's great. And, um, and this is a fun team, and I'm looking forward to them continuing on. I hate the net system. I am not a fan of it. I have never really had opportunity to really dig into it because Pitt hasn't been relevant since they started using it. NCAA's just picked it up in 2018. Pitt hasn't made the tournament since 2016. So I looked at it. I evaluated Pitt, and I never liked the net. But I didn't know how bad it was. And I know they've just changed it in 2020. They altered it, took some things out, left some other things but here's the problem. I want to say this one last thing. A lot of people, you listen to Gary Parish, other people mouthing off that are selling out to the net. They acknowledge that it's flawed, but then they go on and on about the quads. The quad wins, the quad losses, in particular Pitt's quad losses. They go on and on about it. But the thing that Gary Parish fails to mention, after he insults the net, agrees that it's got flaws. When he talks about quads, he's talking about the net. Because the quads are determined by net score. They set these limits like 1 through 30. If you beat a team at home, they've got to have a, a net score of 30 or less for that to be a quad one win. However, if you're, if you're on the road against a team, they can have a net score of 75 or less, and it's a quad one game, lose or win. So they give you 45 more whole rankings in the net to keep it in the quad one range. But again, you're looking at net rankings. So the quads are, in and of themselves, determined by the net rankings, which Gary Parrish acknowledged are flawed. But then he comes at you with all these quad stats, and they're determinative and pits this because they have, you know, eight, six of their eight losses are outside quad ones. That's bad. They're bad. It's like, really? Let's, let's examine that. One is a quad three loss to Clemson. Remember that game? That was the two... Leaders in the ACC, ESPN, picked up that game because it was so big. It was a great game. Pitt lost by one point at home. Now that's a quad three loss. A quad three loss because Clemson has dropped in their net score below 75. 
It had been a quad two loss, but now their their net's 81. Oh, well, that's a quad three loss. A terrible loss. A terrible loss. That close one-point game to Clemson and that great game that was on ESPN with between the two co-leaders in the ACC, a terrible, terrible loss to a lousy, lousy Clemson team who, by the way, is still on the bubble and still has a chance of getting in the tournament, tournament. Gary Parrish. And then he's taken on. Uh, and uh, Another thing is the, the Wake Forest loss. That's now, I mean, win, that Wake Forest win. That's now a quad three win, a quad three win. That was a quad two win. But our quad two numbers are now diminished because their net went to 77. 77 now, so it's got to go back up to 75 to become a quad two win for Pitt. It's now just a, a lowly quad three win. And how about this? This is the funniest one. Miami. Miami ranked in the teens everywhere you look. And every stat, they're clearly a top 20 team. But in the net, they're only 31. And at 31, that's not a quad one win at home. So I'm sorry. Pitt's numbers keep going up and down. They had been five and two, then they went to four and two. Why? Because Miami's net went from 30 to 31. Now, eh, one point, that takes away a quad one win for Pitt. Meanwhile, what's Miami doing at 30 or 31? Their net should be 15. Their net should be, you know, what the hell? What are they hanging around the 30 mark for? Give me a break. That's ridiculous. So Gary Parrish is sitting on the radio arguing how these quad games are so bad for Pitt. Meanwhile, they're based upon the net rankings, which suck. So the value of the quads is very suspect. What's a quad one? What's a quad two? What's a quad three? It's all determined by these terrible net rankings. They're out of the whack. By the way, by the way, KP, the KPI is a stat I like. That's a metric where Pitt currently is ranked 40. They have a 50 net, but they're 40 in the KPI. All those losses are wins. So all those teams I just mentioned, Wake Forest, Clemson, um, VCU has a top 50 KPI right now. Vanderbilt is something like 53 in the, or something in the KPI right now. The pit lost to, you know, uh, all those losses and wins. And Miami, by the way, is, uh, uh, what are they in the KPI? I forget, but that would be a quad one win. If you did the quads by the KPI, Pitt's quads would be great, man. The quads would be awesome if Pitt, if, if the, if the NCAA was determining these quads using the KPI, we'd look really good right now. But no, they're using the net where all those teams are degraded for some reason. And you got crazy things like North Carolina with a higher net at 48 than Pitt at 50. Even though they're 0 and 8 in quad one games, they've got a terrible road record where Pitt is 7 and 3, and Pitt beat them twice. And oh, by the way, yeah, they got a, a bad overall record, three games worse than Pitt as well. And they're worse in the conference and on and on. But they've got a higher net than Pitt. You know, and then you got teams like Liberty and Oral Roberts, who have both of them combined are 0 and 7 against quad one teams. Neither one of those teams has won a quad one game, but they've got net scores higher than Pitt. They've got net scores up there in the 40s. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But look, Gary Parrish, also, it's funny. Andrew Filipponi brought up the VCU leading the Atlantic 10 currently at 20 and 7. Why is that a bad lot on loss? Neutral, neutral court. Pitt lost to them by, what, four? And they're leading. And, and Gary Parrish said, that's a terrible conference. That's just a terrible conference. Really? So the Atlantic 10, after all these years, now even the leader sucks. All of them, every single team sucks. They all just suck. 20 wins in the Atlantic 10 has no meaning. Why? Because that's what the net says. The net has VCU 
at uh, I forget seventy some sub seventy two I think or something like that. I think I think yeah I think maybe they are no maybe they are higher sixty three that's what it is. The net has VCU at sixty three, but as I said, the KP the KPI has them at fifty or forty nine or something like that. So, <clears throat> um, but according to Gary Parish, and then you know what he said, Gary Parish, he said. VCU hasn't been good. Those shock of smart teams that did that, that, that's long ago. That's, well, I went and looked at, uh, at uh, VCU's record. They've been quite relevant since shock of smart. Thank you very much, Gary Parrish. They actually were in the NCAAs two out of the last three years, and uh, looks like they're going to make it this year. Well, I think they'll have to win their tournament because clearly they're not getting an at-large bid. Even being the conference champion of the Atlantic 10 doesn't even get you. And that's an at-large bid uh, these days. So you got to get an automatic bid. They got to win their tournament. But the point is, he's calling that a bad loss for Pitt, a team that's twenty and seven and leading the Atlantic Ten. We lost by four points on a neutral court. That's a bad loss for Pitt because it's a quad two loss, and that's bad. Any quad two loss is a bad loss. I don't. I don't. I thought two was above three and four. I thought there was one and then two. And at three and four. So I thought if you won a quad two game, it was still a pretty good win. And I thought if you lost a quad two game, that was still a pretty good loss. But no, according to Gary Parrish, you need all your losses to be quad one. And any loss below quad one is a bad, bad loss. So for Pitt to have right now a Clemson loss as a quad three, that's terrible. Suddenly, that very good game that was on television is a terrible, terrible loss for Pitt. And then, of course, the Florida State loss at home, a quad four loss, unforgivable. And, oh, by the way, more more bad news, Pitt fans, according to the net. Pitt's playing Georgia Tech tonight, a team that is a quad four team. And they'd be a quad four on the road. They're certainly a quad four at home. If Pitt wins, and let's God forbid they lose, hopefully they'll win. That's 10 quad four wins for Pitt. 10 and one in quad four. Their record will be 20 and eight. Half, a full half of their wins will be quad four wins. They will be only 10 and seven against teams in quads one, two, and three. 10 and one against quad four. That doesn't look good, right? That doesn't look good. But my question, I haven't done the research. How many of those quad four teams really belong in quad four? How many of those quad four wins? Like, I think Florida State shouldn't have been a quad four loss, ever. I don't care how bad their net is. That team was good when we played them both times. That's not a bad team. I know they're having a rough year, but that's a challenging team, you know? I think that's a quad three loss at worst, that lost, even though it was at home. In my mind, in my mind, see? And I wonder how many of those 10 wins... If I looked at them objectively, were they all just the cupcake teams that Pitt played at the Fieldhouse? Or Fieldhouse, sorry. At the Pete and won in preseason? Maybe. Maybe a number of them are. But <laughs> I don't know. That, that used to be okay. Jamie Dixon made, it, made a living out of that. He, he scheduled uh, cupcake teams in the preseason. And he, it got him somehow worked out okay in the RPI and got him a good seed and got us in the tournament uh, every year. Maybe I think Jeff Capel needs to work on his net game. He needs to figure out the scheduling. He needs to get together with Heather Like, and they need to they need to do some better scheduling on a preseason because we need to get ourselves situated. Here, here's the bottom line. I'll end it here. Pitt needs to get themselves situated better uh, in the net when they start uh, publishing it. Because this year, for example, 
they started the net up on December 4th. So they let the teams play like a month. And then they do their scoring and they do their calculations and they publish the first net. And Pitt opened up in the net at 80. And before you say, well, that's because they had those terrible losses to West Virginia. A quad one loss, by the way. <laughs> as as, as uh, West Virginia's net just leapt from 32 to 26 overnight. So they are currently a quad one loss for Pitt. Bringing Pitt's quad one total now to four and three. Because that loss to West Virginia is now a good loss, suddenly. A terrible loss where they blew us out is a good one. Because it's a quad one loss. Gary Parrish will approve of it. This is ridiculous. What kind of insane world are we praising a team for a loss? It's a loss. And what kind of an insane world are we degrading a team for a victory? You know, I don't understand. A close loss at home to Clemson is a disgrace. And a close victory to Wake Forest, ah, that's just a quad three win. It's nothing. Really? That was a good game, too, and Wake Forest was a good team. If they're fading now, that doesn't mean they were bad then. Oh, we look at the whole body equal all year long. We look at all the games. We're the net. Anyway, I feel like uh, we, as, as, as Pitt fans, are experiencing all the downs and none of the ups of the net. And what its weaknesses are, we're seeing full-fledged. And Jamie, oh, Jamie Dixon, Jeff Capel needs to work with Heather Like and get better pre-conference scheduling so that the teams they're playing are considered better so that when they start out in the net, they aren't 80, Right. Because, by the way, that did include the Northwestern win. And I think it also included the North Carolina State win at North Carolina State, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I think December 4th came after those two wins. So even with the help of winning by 29 at Northwestern and winning by 9 or whatever it was at North Carolina State, 8, 7, whatever it was, um, we still, because of those losses to VCU, Michigan, and West Virginia, we still came into the net at 80. And because the other teams we played were bad, you know, had no good nets or whatever, um, had no good strength of schedule or whatever. Uh, yeah, we came in low at 80 from that preseason uh, record. So that's concerning. That's concerning. We've been on an uphill climb ever since. All right, in fact, to date, what is it, the... Uh, 21st or 22nd? What is this? 78, 9, 20, 20. I think it's the 21st of, uh, of February. Uh, Pitt's l- lowest ranking in the net on the year has been 86. And its highest ranking is 48. They're currently at 50. So th- right now, they're sitting as high as they've really been. And, uh, and that's coming off a loss. Um, so just imagine where we'd be if that preseason schedule somehow was more net-friendly let's say, call it net friendly. So Jeff Capel needs to do some numbers crunching in the off season. And we need to get some schedules here coming up that'll situate us better than 80 when we start the conference season. And I think that that'll help us because uh, that's what Virginia did. And that's why they're playing in the same conference as us, not having any more success, just having the same amount. Yet they are uh, a net of 16. Part of it is because they've lost a few fewer games overall, but mostly it's because uh, they had a better net-friendly record uh, schedule before starting the season. Anyway, I like this pit team. I think they are better than the 2011 number one seed pit team. I think they are the third best team of my lifetime at pit. 
second only to the Charles Smith team in, in the 80s that was a number two seed and the Dewan Blair team of 2009 that was a one seed. I think this is the third best team in my lifetime at Pitt. And I think uh, it's going to be exciting down the stretch here. Go Pitt, go Pitt. And by the way, Blake Henson, don't be calling him a wild card. Don't be calling him an X factor. He's the most valuable player on the team. I love you. Yabba da boop